I will have to say formally of McMaster because I've defended since then for, uh, which which is great, and moved on to Wheaton College, where I'm teaching now. Thank you. I do miss Canada. Anyways, last year I also had the honor of following Brandt, um, which was fantastic, and um, and and there I had a chance to talk a lot about method. This year I'm going to skip over method entirely and not bore you with philosophy of history and just get straight to talking about synagogues because that's that's what's really interesting, right? So in, in both the synoptics and John, the synagogues of the land of Israel are identified as the locus of Jesus' teaching and proclamation activities, especially while he was in Galilee. Despite this, modern scholarship on the synagogue has had a surprisingly minor impact on the study of the historical Jesus. Although having much to offer in terms of context and background, synagogue scholarship has often been marginalized or ignored by researchers on Jesus and the Gospels. In a recent article, Anders Runison has pointedly observed that while the fact that Jesus visited and proclaimed his message in synagogues is not contested, it is rare to see studies that seriously ponder the socio-political and religious implications of this institutional setting for understanding of his message. And just, just as an aside, um, when I was writing my dissertation, which was on uh, applying synagogue scholarship to Jesus studies, I was shocked to find out that this wasn't something that, that there was a long history of scholarship um, and so it was kind of a, a nice place to come into the discussion. The problem that Runison identifies is exemplified in scholarship on Luke 13, 10-17, a passage recounting an episode in which Jesus becomes embroiled in a controversy over conflicting interpretations of the Sabbath law in a local synagogue. Now, I, I'd also like to mention that if you pay attention to this passage, um, there's no, uh, no shift in location following this and the two parables um, that follow are, at least in the world of the Lucan narrative, apparently set within a synagogue setting, and that's something that I don't think is, has been commented on before. Anyways, this passage depicts a legal dispute taking place at a public assembly, and is best understood within the context of local official debate and deliberation in synagogue settings. However, the local official background and synagogue context of the passage has been neglected. Recently, some scholars have even gone so far as to treat the synagogue setting as Lucan redaction, thus trivializing its relevance for historical investigation. Um, just two examples off, off, uh, offhand um, would be Nina Collins has done this, and, and Graham Twelftree has said something um, sort of similar. Now, the application of synagogue data and scholarship to the historical study of Lucan traditions involving synagogues has been hampered in previous years by a charge of anachronism against Luke's depiction of synagogues. This hinged upon a rejection of the existence of synagogue buildings in first century Palestine. Since Luke alone among the evangelists explicitly identifies a synagogue as a building, his depiction of the synagogue was considered unreliable. However, this perspective has been roundly rejected in mainstream synagogue scholarship as running contrary to the evidence. It's interesting how New Testament scholarship and synagogue scholarship have never converged on this issue. This essay will consider the issue to have been definitively settled in favor of the existence of Palestinian synagogues in the late Second Temple period. In fact, as recently as 2009, a building that can be confidently identified as a synagogue was discovered at Magdala, and I had the honor of excavating there. The first such complete synagogue building to be discovered in the region of Jesus' activity in Galilee. This summer, um, two more early uh, synagogues have been reported to be discovered also in the land of Israel, but I'm eagerly awaiting the, uh, the excavation reports. Since the turn of the millennium, the scholarly understanding of Second Temple synagogues has advanced in leaps and bounds. 
The question of the definition of the synagogue in early Jewish society is closely tied to the issue of its origins. In the late 1990s, discussion of the origins of synagogues resulted in two competing definitions of the synagogue. The synagogue was defined either as a type of Greco-Roman association, similar to a club or a guild, or a public municipal institution, similar to a town hall, which developed in the late Hellenistic period from the earlier city gate assemblies when defense architecture underwent significant shifts. Strong evidence exists, however, for both of these definitions, which led to the conclusion proposed by Runison that there were, in fact, two types of institutions designated by synagogue terms, semi-public association synagogues and public synagogues. Now, the synagogues frequented by Jesus are evidently of the public type. This is strongly indicated by the assumed public nature of the synagogues in John 18.20. It's also indicated by virtue of the fact that Jesus is able to freely enter synagogues, and the fact that the synagogue gatherings described in the Gospel narratives appear to be assemblies of members of the general populace of the town, with no clear signs of a separate religious or political group dominating the setting. This distinction helps to determine what data set will be the most relevant to the incident recounted in Luke 13, 10-17. Furthermore, identifying the synagogue in this incident as a public synagogue helps to highlight particular aspects of the institutional and socio-political dimensions of the legal dispute between Jesus and the synagogue official. Public synagogues were local official institutions and should not be conceived in terms of their religious functions alone. The characteristic function of early synagogues was Torah reading and the interpretation and spirited debate that followed. Recent scholarship indicates that by the Hellenistic period, the Torah functioned as functional law in the land. Although the legal official status of the Torah in, in the early Persian period is unclear, there is some evidence for the legal status of the Torah um, from the Hellenistic period on into the late Second Temple period. By this time, we see the Torah being applied to situations that are beyond the boundaries of what might be considered to be strictly religious. For example, it's applied to marriage contracts in Tobit 1.8 and 7.12-13, battle plans in 1 Maccabees 3.48, Sabbath observance in 1 Maccabees uh, 2.34-41, and criminal justice in Susanna 62. The Torah did not only govern religious life or the temple cult, it governed everyday life. According to Josephus, Moses ordained the Jewish government to be a theocracy. The, the Torah is the foundation of that theocracy, divine instruction for divine rule. The evidence indicates that transgression of Torah could have serious and very real consequences. So we see this in Josephus, um, as well as in the Mishnah, as well as in the Gospels themselves. It is thus difficult to determine where religion ends and where politics begins in a dispute over the legality of healings on the Sabbath, such as the one depicted in our narrative. As the evidence examined below will indicate, it is impossible to consider a dispute like the one in our passage without taking the political, local official aspects of the institutional setting of the public synagogue into account. There are several features of Luke 13, 10-17 that will help to direct our investigation, allowing us to look at the most relevant synagogue data, or else I'd be keeping you well beyond your flights. So the first, uh, the, first, the specific situation depicted is a legal dispute involving public uh, deliberation taking place in a synagogue gathering, this is uh, in verses 14 to 16, which is indicative of a local official setting. Second, the dispute involves, that is besides Jesus and the synagogue functionary, that is the archisynagogos, um, assembled members of the public. So there's these three parties involved, the, the public, Jesus, and the archisynagogos. 
Third, the crowd decides against the position of the archisynagogos, resulting in himself and his followers being put to shame. This raises questions about the role played by honor and shame within uh, public synagogue settings in deliberation. In light of these features, the discussion of the institutional context of our passage to follow will pay special attention, first, to evidence pertaining to deliberation and disputes in public synagogues, and second, to the expected roles played by members of the public at synagogue gatherings, and third, to the functions of status, honor, and shame at synagogue gatherings. The city gates are described as the place of local official assembly in the Hebrew Bible. Among the most significant local official functions of the city gate was its role as the venue for legal judgment and deliberation. In the Persian period, the gate was also the location of extra-temple public readings of the Torah. In the Hellenistic period, likely due to shifts in gate architecture, these functions were performed in public synagogue settings. The scene in Susanna 28 to 41 that is in the Septuagint is an early depiction of a synagogue gathering. The elders assemble with and address the townspeople in the city synagogue, Tin Synagogin Tis Poleos, for Susanna's trial. Here, Susanna is falsely accused of adultery by two elders. The outcome of this trial is decided by the members of the public in verse 41, who are referred to as, quote, all the synagogue, and in verse 28 as all the Israelites of the city. The text indicates that the important role played by the congregants, uh, sorry, it indicates the important role played by congregants in local official synagogue proceedings. The elders address them because they are the ones who will need to be persuaded, since it is they who decide the outcome of the trial. The social status of Susanna's accusers is the deciding factor in winning the opinion of the crowd, who believe them because they are, quote, elders and judges of the people. A public institution referred to as a synagogue appears in Bensira. Again, this is the Septuagint. The synagogue in Bensira is a public assembly in which an individual could seek honor or be shamed. In 4118, the reader is instructed to be ashamed, quote, of a crime before a judge or a magistrate, and of a breach of the law before the synagogue and the people. This passage indicates the judicial function of Bensira's synagogue, as well as its status as an official institution. Ben Sira also makes a number of references to an institution designated by the term ecclesia. Like the synagogue, the ecclesia was also a public assembly, a place of judgment, as well as a place in which one could gain honor or experience shame. And so given the cognate, uh, cognate meanings of ecclesia and synagogue in Ben Sira, the potential of both to function as synagogue terms, uh, this is a, a, a typical thing seen in synagogue studies, and the apparently identical functions of the institution signified by these words, I suggest that in Ben Sira they both refer to the same assembly, which was a public synagogue. Ben Sira's depiction of the synagogue highlights its role as the place wherein public eminence and personal advancement can be achieved. Honor in Ben Sira, expressed in terms of wisdom, is construed as public communal recognition of standing or reputation. The general assembly as a whole must recognize honor for it to have meaning. So, for example, Sirach 3111 uh, speaks of the assembly proclaiming the charity of a wise rich person. Likewise, 3833 mentions the attainment of eminence in the assembly, and 4415 says that the assembly will declare the wisdom of the descendants of godly men. The assembly also confers shame, as seen in 4211, which warns that a headstrong daughter can put you to shame in public gatherings. Similarly, um, Ben Sir 23:24 says that an adulterous woman will be brought before the assembly and her punishment will extend to her children. 
This implies not only that she will be shamed by being brought before the assembly, but also that the public assembly will be responsible for her punishment. The acknowledgement of one's wisdom and deeds within the public assembly is presented as an ideal to be sought after. Speaking wisely in the synagogues, as in 15.5 or 21.17, is highly regarded and indicates the importance of public discussion within synagogue settings. In Judith, we encounter references to the ecclesia of Bethulia in Judea. Some rhyming going on there. I concur with Ralph Corner's opinion that the depiction of this public assembly is anachronistic, and that it is in fact modeled on a Hasmonean-era Judean public synagogue assembly. The Bethulian Ecclesia is convened in order to discuss the threat posed by the army of Holofernes. According to 6.16, the key congregants in the assembly are the elders of the city. Nevertheless, the gathering was open and involved the town as a whole, as we're told that all of the young men and women of the town also ran together into the Ecclesia. Towards the conclusion of the assembly, honor is conferred upon Achior by the people of Bethulia. Two of the gathering of the three gatherings, sorry, in the synagogue in Tiberias recounted by Josephus in Vita 277-303 are expressly civic in nature. They involve an assembly of the city council, or here called the Boule, along with the public called by the city Archon, or magistrate, Jesus Ben Sophias. In these meetings, the Archon, uh, faction leaders, and the influential council members attempt to persuade the public to adopt their recommended courses of action concerning the war. A third gathering is on the public, or say, on the occasion of a public fast, which is transformed into a political assembly concerning civic affairs by the Archon. There are several other notable elements of this third gathering. The Archon is unable to persuade the townspeople who turn against him in their opinion in Vita 300. In response, the Archon unsuccessfully attempts to salvage the situation by dismissing the members of the public in order to turn the gathering into a private meeting of the council, the Boule. The people, however, refuse to leave. This incident illustrates the power held by the assembled members of the public in synagogue settings and also indicates that private meetings of the council could be held in synagogue buildings. A few observations may be made about the evidence presented thus far. First, public synagogue assemblies typically appear to have involved a gathering of the local council, referred to as the boule or presbyteroi in these passages, along with members of the public. As people of status, council members are often important players in these assemblies. It is the people of status who do most of the speaking. However, as indicated by Susanna 41 and the assemblies in the Tiberian synagogue, final decisions on local official issues discussed in public assemblies ultimately rest with the public. As a result, the assembled members of the townspeople had to be persuaded in order for something to go forward, and they were not afraid to discuss or dispute what was being presented to them. Second, interactions in a synagogue setting can be broadly conceived in terms of the acquisition of honor and shame. Why speech is expected to be recognized by members of the public in synagogue settings. Unpersuasive rhetoric and opinions are construed as folly, resulting in the acquisition of shame. The picture that emerges from the sources indicates that the public synagogue was a local official institution in which one's social status, conceived in terms of honor and shame, could be made or broken. Prestige, reputation, and the validity of one's opinion were at stake for those who engaged in discussion. As such, at the core of the assemblies were people of high social status and influence, such as local council members, magistrates, and patrons like the archisynagogoi, who were in competition to obtain honor. People seeking upward mobility, such as the scribes in the Gospel narratives, 
could also use the public synagogue as a place to obtain recognition and prestige, though convin uh, sorry, through convincing teaching, rhetoric, and public acts of piety or charity. In order for any of these goals to be met, the public would need to be persuaded. Honor ultimately depends upon public recognition. As such, the townspeople played an important role in synagogue proceedings. While it is improbable that the entire population of a town would have attended synagogue assemblies in most locales, a public presence is typically mentioned or assumed in the descriptions of synagogue gatherings in the sources. So let's now see how this reconstruction of the institutional setting can inform the interpretation of Luke 13, 10-17 on the historical level. The episode opens as Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath, in verse 10. Jesus is thus occupying the position of a synagogue teacher, a position usually held by scribes. While he is teaching, a crippled woman enters the assembly, and Jesus heals her, in verses 11 to 13. An act, the act of healing on the Sabbath draws the ire of the Archie Synagogos, and we read, But the Archie Synagogos, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. Note that he addresses the crowd, and not Jesus directly. This is being taken um, by a number of interpreters, in fact, most typically by interpreters, as an indication of the secondary nature of this passage, because the, the dispute seems to be between Jesus and the Archisynagogos, yet the Archisynagogos is addressing the crowd and not Jesus. Now, this initiates a legal dispute that will be settled not by the Archisynagogos, but as we will see by the assembly as a whole. The issue at hand revolves around interpretation of the law, which is not only a religious matter, but also a local official issue. As the evidence presented above has shown, a local synagogue would have been the appropriate and natural setting for such a dispute to take place. Much would have been at stake in the resolution of this dispute. The honor of both disputants was on the line. More importantly, the outcome of the assembly's decision would affect the actual practice in that locale. We must remember at this point that the synagogue was, in effect, the local official center of the town and the venue for judicial deliberation. By persuading the crowd to adopt his perspective, Jesus would be effectively setting a legal precedent for future practice. The fact that the assembly takes place on the Sabbath does not mean that it was only a religious gathering with no political aspect. Political matters could be decided in gatherings at, at synagogues on the Sabbath, as indicated by the Sabbath date of the political meeting described by Josephus in Vita 277-279. The Archisynagogos directs his complaint to the crowd, elegant to Achlo, rather than to Jesus. His aim in so doing appears to be to persuade the public to adopt his perspective on the law, since it is ultimately the public who will decide the outcome of this challenge. Moreover, Jesus is not apparently a resident of the town, so future normative Sabbath observance in that locale would thus concern the townspeople, but probably not Jesus. Whereas Twelfth Tree, for example, has treated this as an indication of the secondary nature of the synagogue setting, as has Nina Collins, I see it actually as a detail that is best understood within a synagogue setting, as opposed to redacting um, the setting out of a synagogue, in which local official disputes were settled by the opinion of the, ma of the majority. As an archi-synagogos, Jesus' opponent would have been recognized as a highly in influential individual. John P. Meyer has noted that the identification of Jesus' adversary in the story as an archi-synagogos rather than as a Pharisee, despite, quote, Luke's great redactional interest in the Pharisees as dialogue partners of Jesus, may point to a pre-Lucan tradition lying behind the passage. 
I'm inclined to agree and would also add that this speaks to the synagogue context of the incident. An incident involving a Pharisee could be located almost anywhere as they have no particular connection to synagogues, but a dispute within our synagogues makes the most sense within a synagogue. We should recall at this point that Pharisees had no specific connection or institutional role within Second Temple public synagogues. By contrast, archi-synagogoi were intrinsically linked to synagogues and would necessarily be influential members of the assembly which they oversaw, as indicated by the evidence presented above. This is a significant detail of the narrative for understanding the passage in its institutional context. Jesus was not being challenged by a member of a rival association like a Pharisee, but by a member of the institutional structure of the synagogue itself, who was quite likely also one of its benefactors, based on what we know about Archisynagogoi from the inscriptional evidence, which I, I just can't cover today. Um, it is thus an uphill battle that he faces, and ultimately a significant victory that he wins. And so in agreement with Meyer, I concur that the identification of Jesus' opponent as an Archisynagogo serves no clear theological purpose, as it would perhaps if it was a Pharisee, and is best understood as a detail belonging to the institutional setting of the incident. Jesus replies to the Archisynagogos' challenge, saying, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Jesus' response takes the form of a Calvo-Homer argument. The rhetorical force of such an argumentative strategy is not lost on the crowd. Now, for our present purpose of examining the institutional context of the episode at hand, the content of Jesus' reply is less significant than the response to it. The description of the public response to Jesus' reply in verse 17 is telling. It says, When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. The public recognizes the wisdom of Jesus' repost to the challenge. As a result, Jesus' opponents, presumably the archisynagogos, and those he had persuaded, are put to shame. Thus, the narrative plays out as a synagogue dispute over a legal issue between Jesus and a person of high social status, the outcome of which is decided by persuading the present members of the public. The public recognition of the wisdom of Jesus' reply to the complaint of the archisynagogos results in his gaining honor, the shaming of his opponents, the legal validity of his Sabbath cure, and the setting of a, a precedent for future practice in that locale. So in sum, the examination and application of synagogue data and scholarship to our passage has highlighted several things in particular. First, the episode preserved in Luke 13, 10, 10 to 17 could plausibly have taken place in a synagogue <laughs> during Jesus' lifetime and indeed seems to best fit within the synagogue setting. That's all I'm claiming as far as that goes. Second, the assembled public referred to as the Oculus in our passage played the decisive role in settling synagogue disputes. This serves to explain the fact that the archisynagogos and Jesus both addressed the crowd rather than one another. Third, the mechanics of synagogue disputes involve status and the exchange of honor and shame. Jesus' victory thus meant the accrual of shame for his opponents and the acquisition of honor for himself. <laughs> Fourth, there was a local official dimension to legal disputes such as the one depicted in our passage. This is due to the synagogue's function not only as a religious gathering, but also as the political, legislative, and judicial heart of Jewish towns in the land. The stakes would thus have been high, going well beyond a matter just of honor and shame for those involved in the dispute, since future practice and the legality of Sabbath healing in that locale were on the line. 
The recovery of the synagogue setting of this passage has opened up new avenues for historical uh, investigation, interpretation, and understanding. Rather than setting the synagogue aside through redaction criticism or any other means, it is important to recognize its place within Jesus' world, his career, and activities. The synagogue was a major defining institution within, Jesus, within Jewish social, political, and religious life during the late Second Temple period, and any attempt to situate Jesus within the Judaism of his day will thus need to take this institution, which appears so prominently in the Gospels, into consideration. Thank you very much. We now have 10 minutes for discussion. Yes. Jordan, uh, thank you. Uh, my question is about the historicity of the narrative. Uh, are you claiming, and I agree with what you're saying, I think what you're saying is that it's the institutional dynamic of the synagogue that's operative in this narrative. Uh, I'm wanting to push it back historically. Are you saying that Luke is um, presuming that Jesus was in the synagogue setting in a physical location within the setting. And that leads to my second question, which is, what's the uh, current archaeological data on the presence of synagogues? Sure. Yeah, and that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I will say this. I, I do think, historically speaking, I think Luke intends to, to say... That this is, I think he's intending history here. Now, whether that, that means that we can say simply that this, that this happened is another question. At the very least, we can say that it's plausible based on what we know of synagogues. So I do think that, that Luke means to situate Jesus within a synagogue. And, um, I mean, we don't always need to, to say that synagogues are buildings per se. There's been a lot of discussion around this in synagogue scholarship. However, we do know that Luke seems to think that synagogues typically are buildings, um, and we know this because of his, his, the specifically Lucan description of the synagogue in Capernaum being a building, which is quite interesting. Um, there is, now speaking to the archaeological evidence, um, there is indeed now, I think, very, um, quite a bit of archaeological evidence for the existence of synagogues in the land. So um, back in the 90s, there was really only uh, the synagogue of Gamla, the synagogue at Masada and Herodium, and that was kind of, you know, that was the core of it. Um, and, and so, the, you know, that, that's why sometimes people would dispute whether these were synagogues or not and that kind of thing. But now we've added so many more synagogues to that data pool. Um, something that I think a lot of people need to understand about, um, about excavation, and this is speaking as someone who teaches New Testament archaeology um, at, at Wheaton College, excavations, can, you can really only excavate about 13% of a site, and that takes millions of dollars. So the fact that synagogues weren't found at every excavation isn't necessarily a problem. That being said, there, are, there now have been at least eight synagogues that, that we can cont, uh, confidently identify in the land as being synagogue buildings, um, at least one of which is situated in Galilee within the region of Jesus' ministry, and that's the synagogue at, at Magdala, at Migdal, right on the Sea of Galilee, which is where I've done um, some of my excavation. Um, there's also been um, at Tel Rakesh this summer, there's been reported a new synagogue uh, being discovered, Horvat Etri as well. Um, Modin, uh, there's been a synagogue discovered there in Kiryat Sefer. Um, Jericho, there's another disputed building, but quite likely a synagogue. And Gamla, just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there's, there's what is you know, un undoubtedly a synagogue from this time. So in other words, there, there is plentiful evidence for the existence of synagogues. And it's actually one of the things that I've tried to push back most against, because in synagogue studies, there's no real sort of 
Um, these days, no one disputes the existence of synagogue buildings, um, but we, it still shows up in New Testament publications, this idea that there were no synagogues. Um, but there's plentiful archaeological evidence. So, so thank, thank you very much. Yes? Yeah, thank you so much. It's a great compliment to Andres Rindesman's work. Um, I have a question about what happens after. So you, you established this um, incident as the start of what could then happen in synagogues later on. So in other words, you're expecting that synagogues are also a locus for miracles? I mean, what exactly is this precedent that's been established? Uh, synagogues are now sites of free health care. Synagogues are now sites of miracle workers can come in and do other things. Help me with this, this ongoing, now what's new? That, that, that's an interesting question. Lee, Lee Levine has, has argued that synagogues, that that was a function of synagogues, like, like you could go in there and people would be performing healing miracles. Um, the, the thing is, is that I tend to see that as a distinctive feature of what Jesus is doing rather than as something specific to synagogues because all the evidence that we have pertaining to healings in synagogues relate to the ministry of Jesus, at least from the Second Temple period. Um, and so what I think is going on here um, with Jesus' performance of miracles as we see um, in this particular passage and, in, and also other passages in the New Testament, I, I think it plays a role in his rhetoric. Um, we're told in, in Luke that Jesus is going into the synagogues to, and he's preaching in synagogues, right? He's, um, he's teaching and proclaiming his message. And um, it, it always seems to me, especially in, in the, uh, the Markan version of the, um, the healing of the man with the, the withered hand and the, uh, and the casting of the demon, um, it, it seems as though his miracles on the one hand sort of demonstrate, and this, this kind of goes, goes to Graham Cabaltree's work on miracles, that it sort of demonstrates you know, the, the presence of the kingdom of God or something like that, or, the, or, the, or the, the coming of the kingdom in his, the realization of it in his ministry. And, and I, I agree with that, but I also think that there's an aspect of um, a persuasion and rhetoric going on there as well. The ability to perform mighty deeds in a synagogue um, would certainly have loaned credence to the, the message that he's proclaiming. Oh, sure. So, so Michael, I was probably unclear. That's what right. I understood you to be saying is that what he did then establishes a legal precedent with the synagogue oh, I so, see. That, so that in future that legal precedent would have some, some cash at. And I'm just wondering if this establishes a legal precedent by which other people can do oh, something. Yeah. What's the other thing that you're expecting people to do? Right, it, it, would, it would be exactly that. So, um, yeah, so presumably it would be something like healings on the Sabbath. Now, it's, it's a bit of an issue because, yeah, Jesus seems to be the only one doing this. Um, but that is to say that um, I, I suspect that there's a reason why the Archisynagogos doesn't want this um, to be allowed. Um, and, and we have to assume that there were other miracle workers in, in the land at the time. Um, like, I, I, I doubt that Jesus was sort of the only one. We just don't have any references of miracles being performed in synagogues. But that doesn't mean that other people might not start doing this and start doing it on Sabbath gatherings. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jordan, thank you. Great paper. I want to make sure I understand what you're doing with the text. Sure. So, so at the start of your summary, I think your first bullet point, I love the way you phrased it, you said the episode represented by the text. Right. And then you were very careful to qualify, that's all that I'm claiming. So it's a multifaceted question. Is this merely a contextualized, you're doing a narrative reading? not a historical reconstruction, and, and if so, then are you doing a narrative reading instead of a historical reconstruction, or does, does historicity come in later? Could this inform historical analysis? How do you see this fitting in? 
Yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning that, so the reason I'm only doing that here is because I didn't want to talk about my, my historical method, because it's, so I, I published in JSHJ last year on, on my historical method, and that was um, the, the Future Historical Jesus Research Panel last year, I also talked about this. Um, I do, so in, for the context of this specific paper, I was just trying to, to demonstrate the plausibility of the passage. However, in my dissertation work, which, which should be published by next year, um, I, I do see this as there is, there is some historicity here in the sense that it's all evidence for inferences that we can make about Jesus. So my particular historical method is derived from the work of Arjun Collingwood with kind of some law and thrown in there. And so Collingwood's um, kind of perspective on how history works in the idea of history is, is that um, history is a process of basically um, the historian gathers evidence and then makes inferences on the basis of the evidence. So what I'm saying is, is that this um, is historically plausible and can serve as evidence for our reconstruction of who Jesus was. So we can make inferences from it about Jesus and about the events that went on and about the inside of the event that is um, Jesus' intentions that lie behind what he's doing. And then someone could challenge those inferences. Yes, absolutely. None of that has gotten started yet. Right. Just not not here. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, I guess I guess you'd have to read my I, my five hundred page tome of a dis, of a dissertation <laughs> for that. Um, but here I'm I'm just for the moment claiming um, plausibility. Thank you. Yeah.